0: now you know why I said Aaron and her. That's Craig and Brian. Held up my arms so the battle could still go our way. I told both of them, I knew they were going to be teaching. I said, I'm not going to announce that you're going to be teaching because just own it. Step in and own the pulpit. And if there's any respect of persons, well, I won't use the term. That I, it, and there isn't. So I appreciate their, and have heard both messages. Really glad I did. And they'll be out also on the information table shortly. Good job. I'm debating whether I think you're going to be her, Brian, her, Aaron, and her. Yeah. So, Jen, you can say I'm with her when you're walking out. So it's h u r Romans 4:13 let's take a couple moments silent preparation father we pray that tonight that you will grant us the concentration of attentiveness toward the truth that's embodied in your son Jesus Christ so that the truth will stay with us and we'll stay with the truth because as John wrote, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. May we fulfill your joy, Father, in that regard for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Amen. On the way down, I was thinking of something. My friend, you remember Taylor Tronzo, he, he uh, communicates with me fairly regularly now, and he's surpassed me now on his theological studies. I can't keep up with him. And I said, well, I've got to concentrate on Romans. But he has, he's been really delving into some phenomenal insights. And among one of the things he said to me, he said, psychiatrists have shown or psychology has evidently proven recently that false thoughts, negative thoughts and false thoughts are like Velcro in the mind. They stick and stay, whereas true thoughts have to be, are more like Teflon, and you have to spend a lot of time concentrating on them before they become a part of your thinking. And I thought of that because many in my generation have latched on to various kinds of thoughts that were negative and held on to them. They've defined their lives even now into their later years. And some of them are ideological ideas. Some of them are false gospel ideas. And it's quite unfortunate that false doctrine sometimes is like Velcro and it sticks quickly and adheres But the truth is something that we have to concentrate on. And I think that's borne out in Scripture, as James 1 says. Gazing into the perfect law of liberty. Gazing into the fulfilled Torah of freedom. The true gospel. Because not just glancing and then going away and forgetting what manner of person we are. But gazing. And that means concentrating with repetition, concentration over a long haul until the truth of the gospel is made our own and that truth owns us. And that's for for that reason, when I reach a theme like God-approved livingness, which I'm dealing with here in Romans 4, I have to keep on giving attentiveness to it not only for my sake, but for your sake, because I want this to eventually adhere to our soul. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 9, speaking of his cross, it was the truth that could not adhere easily to his disciples, and they would hear it and either immediately reply against it, as Peter did, even taking the place of the adversary, and... Jesus said to them on one occasion, let this saying sink down into your ears and into your heart. Let it sink down into your ears and into your heart. That's what we've been doing with Revelation. In the truth of the gospel and the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, a truth that does not adhere easily especially when people have been attuned to a gospel that isn't quite as an announcement of good news. Paul's dealing with a similar situation in Rome, and so tonight I want to consider Christ's faithfulness to death and resurrection and our justification. Christ's faithfulness is the resounding theme throughout Romans— and many times if you're in doubt as to whether a faith or a faithfulness that's referred to without any ownership attached to it or any pronoun attached to it, you can be pretty sure that he's talking about Christ's faithfulness. The thesis verse in Romans 1:17 helps us there by talking about the righteous one shall live by his own faithfulness, by faithfulness. Jesus Christ's resurrection was a reward to him for his faithfulness unto death and that's a reward given to us by grace which is a paradox in itself. Rewards don't come by grace unless you're talking about the reward of eternal salvation. So we've... Plowed up to Romans 4.12, and again, that will be in the free and postage paid sheet on the information table so that you can get up to speed through what's written and we don't have to rehash it. Romans chapter 4, verse 13, and these will all be my translations. They may be tweaked and revised and polished Several times before we get to a full translation or a full paraphrase, I may do both a paraphrase and a translation of Romans when we're all done. And it's about two-thirds done now. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. So then, again, the word gar here is used, and that's a word that's used over a hundred times in Romans. That's being generous. It's really more like 140 times gar. And it shouldn't be left translated because it is inferential. It infers something from what has gone before. So if you have 144 gars in a 16-chapter epistle, you can be pretty sure that it's adhering, it's cohering together as a single argument with inference after inference after inference. Because that's true, this is true. Because that's true, this is true. He builds irrevocably powerful case for the universal nature of God's mercy, the unrestricted nature of God's love, and the unstoppable nature of God's benevolence. Tomorrow night, I hope to get, by the grace of God, I hope to get to the other flank of Romans and to show how this all plays into a dynamic state of love. For the believer, which God approves of and heartily approves of. So then, the promise to Abraham or to his seed, the singular of sperma here, is referring to Christ. Paul makes that explicitly clear in Galatians 3.16. He does not say seeds as if there are many, Paul said, but one seed, and that's Christ. So then, the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would inherit the universe. The word cosmos is used here, and that means that the inheritance promised to Christ and to all those who are in him as the seed is the universe itself, a renewed, restored universe, a new creation. So then the promise to Abraham or to his seed, That he, the seed, Christ, would inherit the universe was not through the law, but through the rectitude of faithfulness. The promise that Abraham's seed would inherit the universe came through the rectitude of Christ's faithfulness. Faithfulness here, Christ's. Of which Abraham's faithfulness, which is the subject in Romans 4, was an early mimesis. It was a kind of an early manifestation. Remember, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of faith. Wherever faith is found, even in the presbyteroi, the men and women of the Old Testament who gained fame by their faith, that faith was authored by Jesus Christ. And... He himself perfected faith by his faithfulness and his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. So after he perfected faith, our faith is a mere participation with his faithfulness. I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, and yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body of flesh, I live By the faithfulness or we could say in the sphere of the faithfulness of the son of God who loved me living in the sphere of the faithfulness of the son of God who loved me is living with a faith that works by love. And this is what pleases God. This is God approved livingness. And this is the rule by which the Israel of God walks as the prolepsis, as the forecast, as the harbinger of a universal new creation. So it was not Abraham's faithfulness that assured that the seed would inherit the universe, but Christ's faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness, first mentioned in Romans one seventeen in Paul's adaptation of Habakkuk 2.4, is the resounding theme throughout Romans. Romans 4.14, we're moving fairly rapidly here. Many of the principles I'm introducing in Romans will not be lost and not forgotten and not left behind when we go on to other subjects and other books, so... We'll never be abandoning Romans, really. But Romans 4.14, he says four. Guess what word that is? You're right, gar. If those who observe the law are the heirs, are the heirs, then the faithfulness is empty. What faithfulness? We have to ultimately refer to Christ's faithfulness. If those who observe the law are the heirs, then the faithfulness is empty. This is the same thing as saying if we are justified by the works of the law, then Christ died for nothing. Christ's death, which is the climax of his faithfulness, is in vain. If we become heirs through the works of the law. So, four, if those who observe the law are the heirs, then faithfulness is empty. Compare that with Galatians 2.21. It's the same as saying Christ's death is in vain. If we're justified by the works of the law, Christ died for nothing. If we are heirs through obedience to the law, then this faithfulness is in vain. Again, I have to refer to this as Christ's faithfulness. Yes, but that faithfulness was demonstrated in a precocious form, in an early mimesis, an early manifestation in Abraham's case. So look at this again. For if those who observe the law are the heirs, then the faithfulness is empty. And the promise is made ineffective. What good is a promise of God? Because the promise... Is Unconditional the promise was in your seed all the nations will be blessed he did not say in your seed all the nations will be blessed if he simply said in your seed which is Christ Galatians 316 all the nations including Israel all humanity for all of its times will be blessed. But that promise is made ineffective if works creep in to the situation. So in reality, Christ's faithfulness is what effectively justifies and rectifies, sets right, makes right. And the promise remains effective in evoking a faithfulness that is sustained by the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1.13 says, You have been sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit and promise are related because the promise came to Abraham. The promise itself in the Holy Spirit evoked faith in Abraham. It ignited faith, it kindled faith, and it sustained a kind of fidelity in him which was a sort of a forecast of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ even to death by crucifixion. The climax of Abraham's obedience was the offering of his son who was spared. The climax of Christ's faithfulness was the offering of himself who was not spared. And God freely gave him up for us all. Romans 8:32, proving once again there is a lamb at the heart of Romans, even as there is a lamb at the heart of Revelation, at the heart of John at the heart of all the prophets and the law, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus didn't die to experience the penalty for your sin. He died to take away sin altogether. And when he did, he took away any of your complicity with sin. These truths are going to come up very clearly because I've been developing three strains of teaching, three strains of Christology. One is Christus Medicus, Christ the physician. The second is Christus Victor, Christ the victor. The third is Christus Faber, Christ the builder. And we'll be showing how these all connect, and especially in his atoning death and resurrection. So in reality Christ's faithfulness is what effectively justifies and rectifies and the promise remains effective in evoking a faithfulness that's sustained by the Holy Spirit of promise by which the saints are sealed in this dispensation or this time we can call it a dispensation inasmuch as it is a time following the atoning work of Christ. The teachers falsely called good news, and he called it that, the audacity. The teachers falsely called good news, this is the false teacher, his falsely called good news would undo Christ's faithfulness. Paul was much stronger, or we'll say much more forceful in Galatians. In 5.4, you have fallen away from grace. Christ profits you nothing If you are circumcised, if you become circumcised with the idea and the intent of being justified, then Christ will profit you nothing. That's pretty strong language. But it has to be put into the context of God's philanthropy, as does the last judgment. The last judgment cannot be understood other than as an act of divine philanthropy. Philanthropy is love not just for one or two people but for all humankind. Just throwing that out because that'll be another theme yet to be developed. The teachers falsely called good news would undo Christ's faithfulness and render the death of Christ and his resurrection for that matter to be in vain. It would result in falling of grace Or falling from grace of its devotees. And Christ would become of no real value to them. Galatians 5, 2 to 4. Other than that of a sidelined religious figure. There are vast sections of Christendom. Which are undergoing terrible disasters now because Jesus Christ has been rendered a sidelined figure, a sidelined religious figure, an emphasis has fallen on human performance over God's action in Christ. That's a disaster wherever it's found, Catholic, Protestant, four-square, charismatic, Pentecostal, fundamental, whatever you want to call it. It's a disaster when Christ is sidelined as a mere religious figure. It happened It's a disaster in any human heart. And how far it is from Paul who said, "I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, the action of God in Christ, the event of Christ, the person of Christ, his death and resurrection. Romans 4.15, see how fast we're moving? A, the first part of Romans 15, for the law produces anger. Wrath is the word, orge. Now, I asked this last week and just began to touch the tip of the iceberg. It produces anger. I asked the question, whose anger, whose wrath does does the law produce? The answer is man's wrath, not God's wrath. It produces anger in those who observe it and it provokes or challenges others who evidently aren't observing it. Paul gets to this again in Galatians 5.24. Those who truly belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts, its passions and desires. And those passions and desires have specifically to do with a person's desire to be preeminent over his brethren. And so, he then says in Galatians 5.25, then walk by means of the Spirit. And then in 5.26, he says, don't provoke one another to anger and envy. What does that? Law observance does that. It provokes others to anger. And that goes both ways. And we made the example as a man who was blameless with regard to the external rectitude of the law. Saul of Tarsus. Paul was an angry man. He says of himself that he was not only angry, but he was injurious, a harmful man and a persecutor. Acts 9.1 says that he was filled with the breath of murder. His anger was directed at those who were evidently undoing the law by their devotion to one Jesus of Nazareth. Whose wrath was that? Saul of Tarsus. Later, when he became a preacher of Christ, he got a taste of his own medicine, as it were, When he was called by Jesus Christ, the Lord said to him, I'm going to show you the things that you have to suffer for my name's sake. Who would want to be called if the preacher said, well, come on up here because we want to pray for you because I want to show you all the things that you're going to have to suffer as a preacher. Would you still get ordained, Brian? No, <laughs> he said, no, yes, you would. Would he? Brianna, do you think he'd still get ordained? You don't know. Steve, deep like st- man, I think so. Jennifer, what do you think? Yes, yeah, see, the adults win on that one. The two adults, your mom and me, against the three kids, Stephen, Brianna, Brian. So then, when he became a preacher of Christ and went back to Jerusalem, something happened in Acts 21. The whole of Jerusalem, being zealous for the law, descended on him to kill him. The whole town came out not to go to a carnival, but to kill Paul. Because the law produces wrath human wrath. Man's rage. So again, I, want to re- I think it's worth reiterating. We'll just stay with Romans 4, but re- read with me Acts 21. I want to show you because this to me is a profound case in point. Whose wrath? The law produces wrath. Just like the Holy Spirit produces love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the law, meaning the law as co-opted by sin. Not law itself, but the law as co-opted by sin, which we've studied in Romans 7. 21, Acts 21, just from 27 to 31. I'm not going to... I'll just read the whole thing through with emphasis. It's from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. As the seven days were about to end, the Jews from the province of Asia... Saw him in the temple complex, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him. Now, the Jews here doesn't mean Jewish people, but Jewish leaders. It's speaking of specifically Jewish leaders. There's been a great new insight in a book called The Jewish Gospel of John by a Jewish scholar in Israel, showing that the word Udayai used there is never used for the Jewish people, but for a specific group of men who were Jewish leaders who went away from the Old Testament and began to adopt rabbinical teachings that were not of the word of God. Jesus said to them, you nullify the word of God by your tradition. So we're talking here about Jewish leaders from Asia. Saw him, Paul, in the temple complex. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law. Who's, what, whose anger is being dealt with here? Let's get this guy. He's not worthy of drawing breath, it says in another place. He should die because he teaches against our law. The law produces human anger. If you've ever been in a legalistic church, there's a lot of angry people there. Stern people. Stern-faced people, church ladies and gentlemen. Always wagging the finger at somebody and not pointing to the dead men's bones in their own soul. All right, I'm being very patient here. Not to say several things that crossed my mind. So then, notice what the next verse says. What's more, he said, he brought Greeks into the temple and has profaned this holy place. They didn't see him do that, but Trophimus, who was an Asian Gentile Christian, Paul had with him in Jerusalem, So they assumed that when Paul went into the temple precincts, he took a Gentile with him, passed the court of the Gentiles, and passed that middle wall of partition so he should die along with Trophimus. So they didn't even say they saw him in the temple complex. They assumed it. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has profaned this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him. Not in the temple complex with him, just in the city. He's with them in the city. They must have been in the temple. And they suppose that Paul had brought him into the temple complex. People that are quick to judge always add a bunch of assumptions to their judgments because it sticks like Velcro. False thoughts, false assumptions, evil surmisings. The whole city was stirred up. The whole city was stirred up. And the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple complex, and at once the gates were shut as they were trying to kill him. Who's angry here? Word went up to the commander of the regiment that all of Jerusalem was in chaos. That's when Claudius Lysias came up. He's actually a relative of Claudia, Claudius Lysias. And the double-timing troops came double-timing up the street and saved Paul's life. Again, this does not mean Moses' law as such works wrath, but as we've seen in Romans 7, the law that's co-opted by the invasive apocalyptic power of sin. So even James was certainly right to say that the wrath of man, the wrath of man, the wrath of man in James one twenty does not produce the rectitude approved by God. Meaning, in James one twenty. Paul would say it this way, observance of the law that produces wrath does not produce or result in a God-approved livingness. If someone's inviting you into some crusade, however righteous it sounds, and tells you there's a time for anger and there's a time for your human anger to be vented, I wouldn't go with them. God has announced that there's a time for love and he hasn't said there's a time for anger afterwards. In Ezekiel 16, 8, John 3, 16 and 17. Now, James, we could insert a note here. James seems to be fighting against Paul in James 2. He's not at all. He's saying, you say you're justified by faith. Well, show me your faith and I'll show you my works. It looks like he's saying you're justified by works. Wasn't Abraham justified by works when he offered Isaac? And he's saying what he's really doing there is reducing both justification by faith and justification by works to nothing. And then he begins to talk about a royal law. In fact, he introduced the whole argument with the royal law, which is love. And so we're not just, God does not approve of human believing resulting in justification, nor does he approve of human works resulting in justification, but he approves of a livingness under the royal law of love. I think James and Paul agree on Galatians 5, 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision amounts to anything, but what's really something is faith working by love. Faith within the sphere of a dynamic state of love is what God loves. That's why Jesus said, let me give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. That's a summary commandment. That sums up the entire responsibility of the believer. We're going to see that again on the right flank of Romans. Hopefully, hopefully, and God willing, even tomorrow night. So Paul would actually agree with James in one twenty. He said, observance of the law that produces wrath doesn't pre- produce or result in a God-approved livingness. People assume that the last judgment is an expression of God's wrath. It's an expression of God's philanthropy. It's a humane expression of God's rectifying of what's wrong, of giving justice to the oppressed, and righteousness to the oppressors, setting things right. It's a philanthropy of God. I'll be showing that again in the near future. But look at verse 15b. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Already in Romans 3.20, he says, By the law comes the consciousness of sin. And in Romans 5.13, he says, sin is revealed as transgression by the law. So the question, I'll do a and a and do both Q and A. Q, whose wrath is being vented here because of a perceived threat against the law? Answer, A, men's wrath, not God's wrath. Romans 4.16, this is the reason the promise is fulfilled as a result of faithfulness. Now, would I be wrong? Would I be remiss? Would I be in error to say that that faithfulness is Messiah's faithfulness? Because it's the same phrase ek pistios used in Romans one seventeen, where we have clearly established that faithfulness to be that of the righteous one who is across the board in the New Testament, whether it's Peter in 1 Peter 3.18, John in 1 John 2.1 and 2, or Paul in Romans 1.17. The righteous one is one Jesus Christ by whom all the human race is made righteous in Romans 5.18. So look at, this is why I translate it this way. This is the reason that the promise is fulfilled as a result of Messiah's faithfulness, so that it may be according to grace in order to guarantee the benefit to all of Abraham's descendants, plural. Not only, I'm emphasizing that on purpose because Paul does, not only, To those of the law, but also to those of the faithfulness of Abraham. Now, here we have to slow down just for a second to define what that is. The faithfulness of Abraham, i.e., is or that is, faithfulness that he demonstrated before his circumcision. The author and perfecter of which is Jesus we have to bring in Hebrews 11 here. And Brian brought in a wonderful overview of all of Hebrews in a wonderful way in his message on Sunday. Now, faithfulness. In Hebrews 11, faith is defined first and foremost, as the assurance of things hoped for. It does not say faith is the means by which we are justified, but it does say faith or faithfulness, a continuation in a hopeful trustfulness in God's promise, gains God's approval. By it, the elders, the presbyterian men and women, gained a good report from God. God gave them a good report. Their faith, which is a dynamic state, of hopeful faithfulness. And so again. Look at this. It has to be fulfilled. The promise is fulfilled as a result of Messiah's faithfulness. So that it may be according to grace. We are saved by grace. Says Ephesians 2, eight, Through faithfulness. Which is not of ourselves. Christ's faithfulness. Christ, if Christ's faithfulness is. Is that which justifies and rectifies humankind, then that goes along perfectly with grace. That we receive that justification by grace and by not faithfulness on our part, but faithfulness on His part. It must be by, it, see, it used to be, my understanding was, the promise is fulfilled as a result of faith, meaning our faith, so that it may be according to grace. But if it's according to our faith, then it isn't according to grace. It's according to our faith. But it has to be Christ's faithfulness altogether so that it may be utterly grace to us. You can't call yourself a grace church and think that you're justified by something you do or even by some believing that you act, act in, by any act of, human be- of a human being. That's not grace. Grace. so that it may be according to grace in order to guarantee the benefit to all of Abraham's descendants, not only to those of the law, but to those of the faithfulness of Abraham. That means faithfulness that he demonstrated before his circumcision, the author and perfecter of which is Jesus. Listen carefully. Abraham's faithfulness is faithfulness authored by Jesus, participated in by Abraham perfected by Jesus in his own perfect fidelity and obedience, even to the extent of death by crucifixion, even to the extent of not being spared, but freely given for us all. Romans 8.32, the lamb at the heart of Romans, the epistle. God will provide For himself, a lamb, Isaac, said Abraham. Still commenting on this without translating, the promises to all humankind in Abraham's seed, illustrated and declared in Romans 5, as Paul looks back through Abraham, he doesn't look to him, but to him and then through him, back to Adam. And then he looks to Abraham to look through him to one Jesus Christ whose faithfulness embodies all of humankind. So here's the translation. This is the reason that the promise is fulfilled as a result of Messiah's faithfulness so that it may be according to grace in order to guarantee the benefit of all. To all of Abraham's descendants, not only to those of the law, but also to those of the faithfulness of Abraham, which means the faithfulness in which Abraham participated, which is Christ's faithfulness. Who is the father patriarch of us all, that is, he is the father or patriarch of both circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles. We all have Abraham as our father or our patriarch and so we are all Israel because to Israel belongs the patriarchs says Romans 9 4 to Israel belongs the patriarchs but infinitely more significant guess what else belongs to Israel Christ who is blessed forevermore in Romans 9, 5, the Messiah. So what we have here is a powerful push for unity here in Romans, the epistle, a powerful push for unity. Paul is saying that both the Jewish saints and the Gentile saints in Rome have Abraham as their patriarch. So one group can't say, well, we're circumcised. We have Abraham as our patriarch. You guys aren't circumcised, you pagans. So you don't have Abraham as your patriarch. Well, Paul says God approved of Abraham's livingness before he was circumcised. And so he's the patriarch of those that are not circumcised. Abraham also was approved for his faithfulness after he was circumcised. So Abraham is the patriarch of of all those that are circumcised. So Abraham is the patriarch of us all. So what are you fighting about? There's nothing to provoke one another anymore to anger or envy. Because circumcision doesn't mean anything. Uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. Because the other side, the Gentile saints were saying, well, our males are uncircumcised, which is a proof of God's favor because he has rejected the circumcised Jews and cast them away. And Paul says, okay, there's another enthusiasm. I think we should curb in Romans 11. In any case, he's demolishing the enmity between groups. The gospel of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ will demolish the enmity between Christian groups today and, in fact, between religions And political ideologies today. Because untruths stick like Velcro. People are walking around with untruths motivating their every action. And it motivates them to anger, to hatred, to resentfulness. And to what always happens in the end. Someone is made a scapegoat for your hatred and your anger and your blame. Oftentimes it can be a political figure. Oftentimes, it can be a person who's known to others. One time, it was Jesus. So, there's a powerful push for unity here. Paul is saying that both the Jewish saints and the Gentile saints have Abraham as their patriarch. Again, shooting forward to Romans 9, four, since the patriarchs, plural, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, belong to Israel, then it must be that these uncircumcised Gentile Christians are Israel along with the circumcised Jewish Christians. So here we have an approach to the Israel of God. Who are they? Jews? Gentiles? Gentiles because Jews are forsaken by God or is it a group of former Jews and former Gentiles that are in Christ Jesus a new creation that have no boast at all. But the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Far more significant than the fact that we all have Abraham as our patriarch. We all have Jesus as our Messiah. Who is God approved and blessed forever? Who is all, and who is in us all? Romans nine five, Colossians three eleven. The patriarchy of Abraham then is rooted not in circumcision, but in Christ, who is the root of David, the root who bears us all. For in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. You see, Romans 4 is looking to Abraham, but Romans 5 is looking through Abraham to Adam in a more universal embodiment of humanity, in Adam. And then beyond Adam, a second man, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, a final Adam in whom all of humanity are found because this second Adam embodies the human destiny which is eternal life for all humankind. That's what Romans 6.23 is all about. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's eternal life for all humanity. In the context, that isn't a Romans road verse to convince people that they're sinners. That's a gospel verse that puts forth Jesus Christ as the bearer of human destiny unto eternal life. In Matthew 3, 9, John the baptizer said it right. He said to the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, who had deviated from the law and the prophets and the message of Christ, he said, don't presume to say about yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And I love what he says here, it's so potent. He said, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones He's down by the river. There's river rocks everywhere. He's baptizing. He says, don't tell me you have Abraham for your father, and therefore you're justified by your heritage. God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And guess what he did? He did that. As living stones, let yourselves be built up into a spiritual temple, says First Peter 2, 5. Living stones. God makes stones to live. He took our stony hearts, took it out of us, and put, us, put in us a heart of flesh. Why? Because he is distinguished from all other beings because he can call things that don't exist into existence. It's called creatio ex nihilo. Creating out of nothing and he also can raise the dead It's a regular thing to God That's why I believe Genesis 1 1 isn't an ancient verse about original creation, but it's a present verse about the new creation In the beginning which is Christ And R.K., God created the heavens and the earth. Much more on that in the future. So that's what God did. He took stones, Gentiles with stony, idolatrous hearts, and made them children of Abraham. He raised them up as such. And that's why in the next verse, Romans four seventeen, look to it now, Romans four seventeen. Paul describes God as the one who makes non-existent things to be or to exist and who raises the dead to life. Abraham wasn't kidding when he said God can take these stones and make children of Abraham out of them. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy. Now you have received mercy. What makes you the people of God, the reception of mercy? 1 Peter 2:10. God raises up stones to be the children for Abraham. Galatians 3:26 to 29. For you are all sons of God through the faithfulness of Christ and all of you are Abraham's children. Galatians 3:29 heirs then so Romans 4 17 just as it is written another thing kathos another phrase Paul uses at least 15 times that shows that Paul is a scriptural theologian not just a covenant theologian see there's a battle between the covenant theologian and the dispensational theologian one's on the right one's on the left The answer isn't either one. It's a higher middle term. It's a scriptural theologian. Paul says, even as it is written, even as it is written, even as it is written, over and over again, because he's a scriptural theologian. I have made you the father of many nations, God says. It is written, just as it is written, I, God, have made you. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves, Psalm 100. I have made you the father of many nations. This was said by God before Abraham was circumcised. Genesis 17:5. Paul then says, "He is our father, patriarch, in the sight of the God whom he trusted." The God who makes the dead alive and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. We are a new creation because God called us into existence as such. God did it. Why are you a new creation? Because God created you in Christ Jesus. God called you into existence as a new creation. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves read and commit to your heart. Psalm 100. All of it. It's not that long. While we were dead. Do you say, did you memorize it? No, I'm saying do what I say, but don't do what I do. While we were dead in sins, I'll do it too. While we were dead in sins, by God's grace. And God made us alive with Christ. God made us alive in Christ while we were dead in sins. That's Ephesians 2.5. So by grace we were saved through Jesus Christ's fidelity to God to the point of death on a cross. We refuse to boast in anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're walking according to the rule of the new creation. Romans 4.18, look at this. For beyond hope, that's the hope that's presented to his eyes empirically. You know why? This is what, what it says, beyond hope. Things were beyond hope. Abraham one day, I don't know if they had mirrors back then. They certainly had rivers. Maybe he's taking a bath. He surveys his body. He's 100 years old. He surveys his body and says... It's dead. Recently, I'm just still doing, please, it's crude, but I want to do it just for illustration. Recently, a, a singer turned, well, a pretty advanced age, and they said to him, what do you think about being this age? And he said, well, I outlived my, and he referred to his male organ, I outlived my, you know, there's a million words for that because that's where people's minds are. It's like we have one word for snow. Eskimos have many words for snow. People have many, many words for that because that's all they think about is stuff below the belt nowadays. But uh, he, Abraham surveyed his body and says, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> so beyond hope, then he surveyed, and then he thought of Sarah and he said, well, she's 90. And she has what's called necrosis, dead. Her womb is dead. Her womb is dead. He said, I'm being realistic here. I'm sexually, reproductively a dead man. Sarah? Well, we can cuddle, but we can't do much else, you see. He's saying, you know, but... Sarah can't, she's not going to, so beyond hope, he had to hope beyond hope. He had to hope beyond what was presented to his survey of his eyes, to his empirical observation of his own dead body and Sarah's dead womb. It actually says necrosin. So the faith is is the assurance of things hoped for beyond sight. I saw a sign, maybe you saw it recently, it's at a garden place or something, it says, faith, it's out of sight. It's true. For beyond hope, that's the hope that was presented to his eyes empirically or by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Abraham still hoped and believed. Why? Because the God he believed in calls things into existence that don't exist. A healthy womb in a 90-year-old woman, a reproductive womb in a 90-year-old woman, a sexually active 100-year-old man. See, people get shocked about that when preachers talk about that, but the the Hebrew Bible is extremely sensual and unapologetic about stuff like this. So I don't even know why I get embarrassed talking about it. It's not... I think it's because of the generation I grew up in you said a naughty word there's always the aunt that says that she's the one that gives you underwear for Christmas you know and then they go to your father Don Ricky said a bad word and he said really what was it and they'll tell him and he'll go Okay, Rick, you shouldn't have said that. Okay, but anyways, for beyond hope, I've been away too long, the hope that was presented to his, actually, I've been in my study. This is what happens to me. The hope that was presented to his eyes empirically, Abraham still hoped and believed beyond that hope because faith is the assurance of things hoped for regardless of sight, that he would become the father of many nations. Now you know why Sarah laughed. According to this word that was spoken to him, so shall your seed be, over and out, unconditional, I'm doing it. So Abraham says, okay. The faith motivated him to a complete obedience to God that took him to Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, 2. In Genesis 22, 4 and four fourteen, when Isaac was about 21, the son that he believed he'd have, when Abraham was 121. And guess what happened to Abraham? He had a whole slew of kids afterwards up until he was 175. So then, He surveyed, it says. Listen carefully. He offered his son Isaac there in Genesis 22, in whom the seed would be called in Genesis twenty-one twelve, The seed would be called in Isaac. So he offers him, but he was spared as God's faithfulness later took his son to another mountain, Mount Calvary, where his son was not spared but hand it over for, to die for the sins of the world, to deliver us from this present evil age. So Romans 4, 8.32, not sparing his son, refers back to the sparing of Isaac in contrast and reveals the lamb that God would provide as Abraham's faith proclaimed. In closing, let's look at 4.19. I guess I wasn't... I was going to go all the way through 25. I'll do that tomorrow night. I'll kind of zip this really fast. I'll zip through it fairly fast because I want to hit the, other, the right flank of Romans and show the dynamic state of love, which we've only suggested now. It becomes explicit where I'll show you tomorrow night. 419, he surveyed, looked at, that is by sight, his own body. He, he surveyed his own body. Already dead. <laughs> He surveyed his body, already dead. It says dead. God raises the dead, does he not? Being about a hundred years old, Paul said. And he surveyed the deadness, necrosis, of Sarah's womb. Without weakening in faithful trust. He did that survey and it didn't weaken his trust at all, that God was going to do what he said he did. What he said he would do. Now, I don't know. If, if Abraham was really thinking in faith here, he must have said to himself, oh boy, because God was going to make something possible. And Sarah laughed and she said to him, she said, So you think we're going to do that after all these years? Verse 20. He not only did not doubt the promise of God, but being strengthened in faith when he faced the hopelessness by sight it not only did he not waver his faith was strengthened because i would say with him and i'd say it today it's got to be god all the more his faith was strengthened it says and this is what paul's trying to do in romans he says this is the gospel Of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery by which I want to strengthen you Your faith that it has to be God's action Being strengthened in faith. He gave glory to God verse 21 being fully convinced That what God had promised he was able also to do For this reason Abraham's listen carefully for this reason Abraham's faithful trust was accounted by God to be rectitude God for this reason He didn't just believe the promise and God said, okay, I count that for you as judicial righteousness. Paul said it's for this reason, that he was strengthened in faith, that his constant persuasion went to a maximum degree of the glorification of God. For that reason, God approved of his faithful livingness. This isn't about justification by an act of believing, a forensic imputation of righteousness. This is about God approving the livingness of a man, which is faithfulness, which is a participation in Christ's faith, a kind of a forecast of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to God, to the extent of death by crucifixion, to the extent of death from which he was not spared. So I want to close with this to give you this idea to think about. If this was an argument for Abraham receiving a judicial imputation. I realize that today I used to think that and there's so many things I say that I used to think God says I think what God is telling me at this time in my life is I'm making you an example not of someone who was always right but of someone coming up out of a an incomplete gospel to a complete gospel in the sight of a lot of people. And that makes a lot more sense to me. That makes me say, maybe I'll go till I'm 100. So, if this was an argument for Abraham receiving a judicial imputation as justification, then Abraham was only justified after a long process of faithful trust despite sight until he was 100 years old. So it doesn't wash. That argument doesn't wash. Paul isn't fighting against the doctrine of a justification by works by putting forth a doctrine of justification by personal faith. He's declaring that the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the act of God in Christ is what rectifies everybody and not personal faith or personal works. This is the thicker reading of Romans. This isn't the thin reading of Romans. So we should more clearly see, call it another lens drop. You see those commercials for the casino, a window drop. They roll down the window and say something fairly stupid, but it's cute. But this is another lens drop. See a little better now. That what Paul is speaking about here is a livingness in faithfulness which God considers to be rectitude. God's approval of Abraham's rectitude, call it God-approved livingness in Genesis 15, 6, therefore covers the entire time between God calling him in Genesis 11 as one man And God's multiplying him, beginning with Isaac and even beyond to Abraham's obedience of faith, which he offered Isaac and received him back into his embrace. In other words, Abraham, like God, had no regard for death, but only for life. For God is a God of the living, and to him all are living he says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob today are not dead but living because to God, all are living. And furthermore, here's a note to go on for the future. In God's action, the last judgment is an act Of God's philanthropy. Not wrath. In fact he does away with all the wrath. That comes by the law. That's co-opted by sin. Thank you father for this opportunity. Once again to look. And as we said at the outset to gaze. Not just glance but to gaze. Into the. Law of freedom. The Torah of freedom. Which is a paradox. It's a Torah or a law of freedom from the law. Which has been co-opted by sin. And Father, I thank you for the truth. And I do thank you that the truth has to be attended to more carefully than lies. Lies stick quickly. Truth adheres only after long periods of concentration. That's why we must continue in your word.